Good evening, and welcome to this evening's dialogue with Chris Patton on the occasion of the paperback publication of his book, What Next? I think I'd first like to ask you to join with me in giving him a very, very warm welcome. We're very pleased that you're here. Thank you for coming. A brief note about him and something about the book before we start. Um, Chris Patton was educated at Oxford, where he read modern history. In 1974, he was appointed as the youngest ever director of the Conservative Research Department, and in 1979, he was elected as Member of Parliament for Bath. Following the election, uh, general election of June 1983, he was appointed Parliamentary Under Secretary of State, the Northern Ireland Office, and in September 1985, Minister of State at the Department of Education and Science. In September 86, he became Minister for Overseas Development at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and in July 1989, he became Secretary of State for the Environment. In April 1992, he was appointed as Governor of Hong Kong, a position for which, of course, he is well known across the world, and a position which he held till 1997, overseeing in a remarkable way the return of Hong Kong to China. He was chairman then of the, later of the Independent Commission for Policing of Northern Ireland, set up by the Good Friday Agreement, which reported in 1999. It goes on. From 1999 to 2004, he was the European Commissioner for External Relations, and in January 2005, he took his seat in the House of Lords. He's an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, Edinburgh, an honorary fellow of Balliol College, Oxford. He was appointed Chancellor of Newcastle University in 1999 and elected Chancellor of the University of Oxford in 2003. If this is not enough, he has written a lot. Among his very best-selling books are the one we are talking about tonight, What's Next? Surviving the 21st Century, published originally in 2008, paperback today, Not Quite the Diplomat, Home Truths About World Affairs, 2005, and East and West, 1998. Let me now turn to the book in question, of which I'm only going to say a little before sitting down to have a conversation about it. I asked one of my PhD students sitting up there, Angus Fain Harvey, if he'd look at this book before I did and just give me his general impression. He's someone I very much trust in all of this, and he didn't know that I would be quoting him this evening, but I'm going to quote his email, which I think is both instructive, illuminating, and raises some interesting questions. Quote, Patton's book is an excellent overview of the various global policy issues facing the world in the 21st century. It's a thoughtful, measured analysis from an experienced and well-read practitioner of British foreign policy. Not bad from a PhD student. It's very readable, squarely aimed at the same kind of audience that enjoys Sachs, Stiglitz and Friedman. In my opinion, though, it's superior to all of their latest offerings. In many ways, this is where it gets interesting, his political views are remarkably similar to yours, David. That's mine. Which is interesting, because I all my life have been a social democrat on the radical side of social democracy. <laughs> and so there's an interesting you know, question, a series of questions here about perhaps once when one engages in the big global issues, do some of the classical delineations of left-right politics begin to break down in a way that is significant and important to recognize. But it goes on, Harvey. however, this is not always the case, that is the remarkable similarity of political views, because he is definitely more Martin Wolf than Will Hutton. 
So on this very illuminating introduction, I want to begin to ask uh, uh, our guest a number of questions, but just before I do, it remains to me just to say one thing. This event is hosted by a new LSE initiative, Global Policy, with a banner of which is there. Global Policy begins publishing in January 2010. It's an extremely innovative attempt to bring together world-class academics and practitioners to analyze public and private solutions to global problems and issues. Watch out for it. Its agenda is not dissimilar from the agenda we're going to explore this evening. So let me begin, and I'm going to sit down, by asking Chris Pratton briefly, why did you write this book? Apart from the fact that I wanted to demonstrate how much I agree with you, <laughs> having, having never read any of um, two reasons, first of all. First of all, um, I blame the Astronomer Royal and Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, who's a wonderful man, um, wrote a book um, a couple of years ago, uh, which his... He wanted to call the final century question mark. His publishers, with an eye to marketing, removed the question mark. Uh, and when it was published in the United States, um, you know what they're like, they called it the final hour. <laughs> and it is a remarkable book, not an easy read. Uh, but uh, the Astronomer Royal says in it that he thinks we've got a 50-50 chance of surviving the century. And as uh, the sister ring your withers, as the grandfather of five and the four-year-olds, those didn't seem to me to be sufficiently good odds. Um, and anyway, I don't think that the end of the world is nigh. It never has been in the past, and I don't see why we should regard it as being nigh now. Secondly, there was, there was uh, a reason which is anchored in my experiences as a European Commissioner. Uh, despite the extraordinary uh, successful economic integration in uh, Western and now Central and Eastern Europe, um, I continue to believe that nation-states remain not just the building blocks of uh, uh, the European Union, but the building blocks of international society. But also believe that nation states on their own uh, can't live up to their pretensions to protect their citizens from the challenges, from the problems that crowd in on us. Uh, and I believe that we need, to a greater extent than ever before, um, uh, more uh, global and regional cooperation to cope with those problems. I guess uh, my views on that were also um, uh, triggered by the hapless unilateralism of the last President of the United States, whose name escapes all of us, um, uh, and I guess um, uh, as well I was affected by the sense in which uh, we pretend that our borders um, are not as porous as in fact they are so hence this book 
which I meant to be optimistic, um, but some people have found it a bit gloomy. You, your approach to international issues and clearly the, the importance of, of increased international collaboration is shaped by an intellectual framework that has a very long and honourable tradition in international relations thinking called liberal internationalism. And you, in this book, develop a particular way of shaping the sort of the values and approach you call international, uh, uh, liberal internationalism. And in order to understand your views, I think we need to have some sense of what liberal internationalism is. So perhaps you could say why you think liberal internationalism is the right way of thinking about how to frame our approach to big global issues and challenges. You should have been my editor, or perhaps you were, because my editor, who um, I would say, even if he wasn't in the audience, uh, is the best non-fiction editor in London, the world, the universe, <laughs> wherever, um, kept on saying to me, you've got to define what a liberal internationalist is. And I kept on saying, but this is what the book is about. I'm describing a liberal internationalist. Well, first of all, um, a liberal internationalist, when reading the sheet before me, which is uh, described thus, guide to chairing public meetings in the event of disorder. <laughs> I think that's for me. <laughs> a liberal internationalist doesn't think that in the event of disorder, half of you should be shot. Um, uh, a, a liberal internationalist, I guess, thinks that a bit of disorder is the price we pay for freedom. T to be more serious, I think a liberal internationalist believes in uh, pluralism, uh, strengthening civil society, uh, accountability, openness, democracy, um, a, uh, open economies, but doesn't believe that neoliberalism should be allowed to capture Adam Smith, believes, unlike Mr. Greenspan, that markets don't regulate themselves, uh, and also believes, um, I've just been reading, or attempting to read, Amartya Sen, um, believes in, uh, I think, a pragmatic effort to cope with global problems of inequity by uh, interventions of the state as well as the use of market instruments. Um, so I think that's what a liberal internationalist is. I became more of a liberal in a conventional sense, um, oddly enough, in Hong Kong for two reasons. First of all, because Hong Kong obliged me to think once again why I believe in democracy, the rule of law, and the relationship between democracy and sustainable economic development. And secondly, because uh, Hong Kong is such a challenging example of market economics in operation. Um, the things which, on the whole, have gone wrong in Hong Kong economically are areas where the market hasn't operated. Um, municipal housing, for example, for understandable reasons. Um, but on the whole, it was, I think, that experience in Hong Kong, both political and economic, 
that made me realize much more than when I'd been a British minister the connection between political liberalism and economic liberalism. Mm. Well, I, I think that's very helpful. I'd like now to take this framework and think a little bit with you about how you apply it to a number of substantive areas. But first of all, let's, let's go to one very big topic, um, which is globalization. I mean, Martin Wolf wrote a book in 2004 called Why Globalization Works. I had a debate with him at the LSC some years ago, perhaps two years ago, three years ago now, and I asked him, you know, would you still call the book by that title, since crises were already brewing some two years ago or so. Yeah. And Martin Wolf is certainly on the side of taking the view that, that, that liberal markets plus states are the key to development, and as he puts it, all else is commentary. Now, in your book, globalization powers through as a main driver of change, and you see globalization as a driver of very positive changes on the whole in the world. But I, I just wonder about that to some extent, whether that view is too unqualified, because in a sense, some of the most successful developing countries in the world, like China, India, Vietnam, have engaged very selectively with the globalization process, have lowered tariffs selectively, have not gone to financial globalization, have resisted floating their currencies, and have managed, as it were, their entry into the global markets in, the, in a very state-controlled way. Whereas other countries, like the transition economies of Eastern Europe, Latin American economies, that went all out for free trade and open financial markets, have done a lot less well. So I just wonder how, you know, what part of this package of globalization, as it were, you, you, you really want to defend as a liberal internationalist, because you clearly want to also emphasize the centrality of state regulation, state control in some respects. And we see this now in the financial crisis, which I want to come to in my next question, so perhaps you could leave that out. All right. Um, well, I argue about globalization at three levels. First of all, there is the broadest level of all. Um, there's a, a great line in Waiting for Godot, uh, when one of the characters, I've forgotten which one, says, you're on earth, there's no cure for that. <laughs> and I don't have to spell out what I mean by that, the natural interdependence, um, which uh, has affected everybody from, and everything from uh, New Zealand to Nova Scotia. Secondly, there is the broad surges in globalization, um, particularly the two most notable ones in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and in the late 20th century, which had very similar um, uh, causes. In the 19th century, the opening up of the American Midwest, development of Chicago, the Chunqing of the 19th century. Secondly, technology, uh, steam trains, uh, uh, steamships, um, uh, telegraphy, uh, and the breaking down of trade barriers, led by this country, you know, um, the only country in which called a music hall after. Uh, uh, an economic concept, the free trade hall. Um, in the 20th century, three similar triggers. Technology, all the things we know, containerization, air travel, uh, and so on. Secondly, 
the equivalent of the opening up of the Midwest and, and uh, Chicago, China and India joining the global economy to varying degrees over the last uh, generation. And thirdly, again, um, the breaking down of trade barriers. And in particular, China and Asia taking advantage of the openness of markets in the United States and Europe. At those levels, um, I think globalization has been, or at that level, globalization has been um, beneficent. And at the previous level, it's um, inevitable, implacable, and there's no point in arguing about it. The third um, area is um, how much you allow markets to operate in an unregulated way on the grounds that uh, to deny uh, markets um, that is to somehow impede the process of globalization. And I think it's fair to say that some people, including maybe um, me among them, um, went lent too far in that direction. Um, though I've always been regarded by some in my party as too interventionist rather than the reverse. I don't think that globalization makes everybody better off. Um, in particular, I think that those without skills or education are likely to be left behind. But I think that globalization makes more people better off than protectionism. Uh, and I think the, uh, the hundreds of millions who's, uh, who were lifted out of poverty by Deng Xiaoping's opening um, in China, the tens of millions who were lifted out of poverty by Manmohan Singh's um, openness to the global economy in India um, are testimony to that. But um, it doesn't mean that all the problems of social inequity have, um, have been uh, coped with. They certainly haven't. And it doesn't mean that you can't produce examples of multinational corporations um, uh, trading down in terms of environmental and other standards. Let's just take one area of this now, which is um, financial globalization. I mean, George Soros has recently said that he thinks it may be true that financial globalization has died through the credit crunch, that we may not get back to that degree of financial globalization ever again. In your book, you point out that the greed of bankers is certainly to blame for aspects of the financial crisis. But you also say that governments should be take some responsibility, if not a lot of responsibility, for their various failures to regulate the banking sector, particularly the shadow banking sector. I wonder what you think that failure was and whether you think the British and American governments, among others now, have gone some way to restoring the balance or are we actually only tinkering in such a way that we can expect a return to this crisis or a version of it a few years down the line? Well, first of all, something we're not going to get rid of is greed. Um, I mean, it's... <laughs> I, I, I thought it had gone underground for a bit, but when you look a little further to the east, it seems to be alive and well. Um, and that maybe shouldn't surprise us. Um, Isaac Newton, who lost his shirt in the, in the South Sea bubble, um, 
once said, I can calculate the movement of the heavenly bodies, but not human madness. Uh, we're left with that. Um, secondly, uh, I don't think that any tinkering with international financial mechanisms or international governing institutions uh, can save you from bad macroeconomic policy. And that seems to me to be at least part of the reason for what happened in this country and in the United States. Why are we in such a mess here? Partly because we were responsible for half the total credit card debt <coughs> in Europe. Partly because public spending uh, was running out of control, so now we're faced with a fiscal deficit which will be 12-13% of GDP. Um, in America, I think there, are, uh, there were other um, explanations as well which are part cultural and not just economic. Uh, in America, average remuneration has been pretty flat for 30 years. Um, at the same time, the uh, pay of the very rich has increased hugely. And everybody else uh, remains challenged by what J.K. Galbraith called America's difficulty in coping with the concept of reasonable sufficiency. And on the whole, people bridged flat earnings and uh, that challenge that they should be able to buy, buy anything that was available um, by borrowing money. So that in the mid-80s, uh, earlier, late 70s, um, American domestic debt ran at about 680 billion. Um, by, the, by 2007, it had risen to 14 trillion, with American households on average having three, 13 credit cards with 40% um, owing money. Um, and that bubble was encouraged by the Greenspan attitude to um, uh, interest rate policy at the Fed. If there was any, ever anything that looked like a downturn, you cut interest rates. So my own view is that the principal reasons for uh, what's happened are bad macroeconomic policy plus the Greenspan idea which he now concedes was a flaw in his thinking that markets would regulate themselves. When people started to argue about the casino of housing finance uh, in the United States with Greenspan, he said this would look after itself. It did, um, but at, at a considerable cost. Now, what does, what does all this mean for the future? Um, it obviously means that we're in for pretty painful periods of adjustment um, in those countries which had borrowed too much money. Um, it obviously means that banks are going to be obliged to operate, at least I hope they are, um, in a more uh, 
restrained environment than has been the case in the past. But neither of those things will deal with um, another of the cause for our present woes, which is the global imbalance between America, which spends and has been the borrower of last resort, and um, uh, China, which saves. And quite how you get Americans to save and Chinese to spend, given their respective social histories, and given the need to calibrate those changes very carefully so that the process doesn't become hugely disruptive, um, is beyond my intellectual powers. Well, I want to come back to that question perhaps a little later, especially the question of international financial governance in a a few minutes' time. But before I do come to the issues of governance broadly, I want to ask you now, moving away from economic globalization, the financial crisis, to security issues, which you you write about in the book. And you say very tellingly in the book, and you're on the record publicly of saying this many times, that, of course, 9-11 was a terrible blow and a a major catastrophe. But the response of the Bush and Blair governments was such that they made problems worse rather than better. They created more problems in the wake of their uh, interventions than they solved. And I, w- I just want to know a little bit about why you think that, and, but perhaps more importantly, um, what should they have done differently? Well, one thing they shouldn't have done was to invade Iraq. But should they have invaded Afghanistan? Yes, but they should have actually, when they'd toppled the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. They should have had enough boots on the ground, enough, enough money in development to actually secure um, a... at least as, as, as Mr. Ghani, the exceptionally good finance minister of Afghanistan who was tipped out of office because he wasn't corrupt. I mean, he used to say, all we want from the international community is a bit of stability and the chance to move from abject to dignified poverty. Um, and we didn't provide the stability, and we didn't provide the resources to allow that, that development. Why not? Because from the moment that uh, the Taliban were dislodged in Kabul, uh, Mr. Rumsfeld and Mr. Cheney and Mr. Bush um, focused on the build-up to the war in Iraq. Um, I mean, you couldn't have written the script better for Osama bin Laden than the way than the way it was written. Um, I also think that the whole notion of a war on terrorism uh, was completely misconceived. I mean, I write in in this book that you don't write you don't fight wars against. Um, uh, uh, General nouns. You write. You. Whenever you, whenever you hear a politician saying we're we must we're fighting a war on poverty, um, you know you know it's just rhetorical claptrap. Um, you countries fight wars against one another, and there are there are advances and retreats and battles and surrenders and communiques. But terrorism is something we've had to live with for uh, ever. Uh, and the difference today is the use of 
technology by terrorists, and I suppose you could also as well argue as well the use of um, uh, suicide bombers, though um, suicide has not been absent from terrorist acts in the past. Your argument, though, is that, clear, that Iraq was a, you know, a serious miscalculation, error of judgment. It made things worse, and the tension was switched away from Afghanistan. Well, now the attention clearly is back on Afghanistan. Is it, is it, is it, is it too late to turn back to Afghanistan? And clearly that project of intervention and development could have been consolidated in 2003-04, and the opportunity was missed. But now it seems to many people, including myself, that actually it has been missed. And what we see now is taking already a very problematic situation and at risk of making it worse. Do you agree with that? Or do you think if you were Prime Minister now, you would be ratcheting up Afghanistan in the way that is currently proposed? Well, what I'm clear about is that you can't say to young men and young women who are um, putting their lives on the line in uh, Afghanistan, and the, the casualty figures are pretty horrific. You can't say to them, what you're fighting for is an exit strategy. Um, I mean, people very often criticize um, Margaret Thatcher. Have you heard they criticize Margaret Thatcher? Um, during the Falklands War, for example, um, the very clarity and directness of what she was trying to do was plainly um, very good for the morale of our, of our troops. Um, and I just, I, just, I just think we have to be much clearer about what it is that we want those armed forces in Afghanistan to do now. I have some difficulty in explaining that as a narrative which you could easily use in the saloon bar of the dog and duck. Um, I don't think the analogies with Vietnam are at all good. Because whereas I don't think there was a the domino theory really operated in Afghanistan, in Vietnam, I think domino theory is relevant in Afghanistan because I don't see how we could simply <coughs> jack out of Afghanistan without it having appalling consequences in Pakistan, without it helping to further destabilize the government in Pakistan, embolden and strengthen uh, Islamic extremists with all the horrible dangers for South Asia as a whole uh, that uh, one then has to comp contemplate. Um, I think a lot of the debate at the moment is the wrong way round. People have focused on this issue of whether Obama should send 40,000 troops and whether we should send 500. If Obama decided tomorrow to send 40,000 troops, they wouldn't be in Afghanistan for another year. It'd take them long enough to build the camps for them. Um, so the real question is, is, what is the political strategy we're trying to operate in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and how can the military support that? I don't think it's best supported with more um, uh, 
drones bombing more wedding parties. But I do think it involves a substantial military element. Um, I haven't been to Afghanistan since 2003, and I'm not really aware of, from my own experience, of how much worse things have got. Um, but uh, I find it difficult to believe that we couldn't be putting more pressure on Karzai on particularly issues like uh, local autonomy and corruption. Um, switching to another topic you address before coming to the overall questions of governance. I mean, in the book, you, 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 you sort of echo something that Sir David King said, who was the former UK chief scientist. He said rather controversially, and it got him into some trouble with the then Prime Minister Tony Blair, that climate change was a far greater threat than the issue of terrorism. And you clearly recognise that it's, quote, altogether in a different league from other pressing questions. Do you think a failure to reach a deal in Copenhagen would place a uh, uh, world climate in, a, in greater jeopardy? Or do you agree with Obama that we shouldn't let the search for the perfect be the enemy, as it were, of the good? Well, um, if the perfect is that we find a way of preventing global warming beyond two degrees Celsius by 2050 um, and the good is that it's three degrees Celsius or three and a half or four I'm strongly in favour of the perfect um, I think there's a slightly different point if we don't get a I's dotted T's crossed agreement in Copenhagen which looks like a watertight follow up to Kyoto should we all despair to which my response is not necessarily and my other response is I don't think we will get that agreement I think what we're likely to get is the serious start of a process which will have started America down the line towards seriously addressing um, its carbon economy, will have started to address the difference between per capita uh, emissions and aggregate emissions will have started to address the existing responsibility of developed countries for what's already up there but will have also involved um, emerging economies in not putting more up there in the future and I think that the position of Brazil on all this has been particularly encouraging um, I mean clearly we're better off than we would have been if um, President Bush was still in the White House and Senator Inhofer still making the running on uh, environmental policy and the like. And we're, we're more advanced than that. Um, but I'm a bit skeptical about whether we're so far advanced that we'll be able to nail down a comprehensive deal in Copenhagen. <laughs> And I hope 
that the environmental pressure groups don't give the impression after Copenhagen that it's all up and there's no point in trying any longer. The other thing I hope we can avoid is um, the characteristic Blair position. Mr. Blair, as you know, as well as bringing peace to the Middle East and reconciling global faiths um, <laughs> and making an honest crust out of um, speaking to bankers, and has also taken it upon himself to um, uh, lead the campaign against uh, global warming, but appears to believe that it's we don't have to change the way we live, that it's all about technological fixes. And I think that's very dangerous. I think we do have to make changes in the way we live. And for some of us who live very comfortably, the changes may be a bit uncomfortable. I don't think it's hair-shirt time, but I simply do not believe that we can solve this problem um, by simply going on as we are but paying a bit more for petrol. Now, I want to ask you a few more things, before I, a couple of things before I open it up to the audience to put your questions. But one of the things that cuts across all the issues you deal with, and I've only touched on a few, so economic globalization, financial market crisis, uh, security problems, uh, climate change, is the issue of governance. And the, in some senses, the mismatch between market societies, markets, the problem of externalities, and governance mechanisms, intelligent regulation, etc., and you write that the current system of global governance is out of date. Uh, Tony Blair, you mentioned him, calls it dysfunctional now. Uh, and, but since your book was written, the G20, for instance, has gained increased legitimacy over certain yeah. old organizations such as the G8, as the forum on, for key discussion on how to handle big global economic issues. The G20 meetings have also seen many commentators now identify China as coming of age in the arena of global governance. I mean, how big a lacuna is the governance issue? I mean, I, my own view is, is that global governance is this now, out of date, dysfunctional, that 1945 settlement no longer represents as a level of representation or effectiveness the kind of international organizations one needs at the global level. But is the G20 a, a significant move in this direction? Does governance require much bigger roles for India and above China now? And, I mean, what, and are we making progress? Because it does seem to me, at least in one respect, that the financial crisis has done something that might have otherwise taken decades to achieve, quite a significant shift in the participation of the BRIC countries, above all, in global financial governance, where they were not represented before, right across it. And, of course, the increased displacement at some level of the G8 by the G20. This is a small step, but it's not trivial. But yes to all those questions. <laughs> um, uh, well, let's, let's um, uh, unpack the suitcase a bit. Um, I totally agree with you that we are blessed with institutions of global governance which were largely the creatures of the end of the Second World War and which reflect either the power balance at the end of the Second World War um, with huge American generosity to those who were um, much less powerful than they were 
Um, and some slightly exotic political touches such as um, putting France in the same category as the US and Russia and others. Um, how can you reform the UN without reforming the Security Council? How can you reform the Security Council without uh, addressing the fact that it doesn't ref re reflect today's political heavyweights and realities? How can you legitimize um, international interventions in the sovereignty of other countries, for example, the whole notion of responsibility to protect, without the um, uh, Security Council's um, uh, stamp, and how often, how likely are you going to get that with the present Security Council? I mean, there's a whole nexus of issues around reform of the UN, which are very difficult to disentangle, and you have to go at it a bit at a time. So maybe at the moment, we have to look at ways in which we can limit the use of vetoes by the permanent five members of the Security Council, so that um, you'd only be allowed to use your veto if it directly affected your national interest and you would have to justify it to the General Assembly. Um, I think I'm right in saying that uh, America has used its veto... 130-something times. Right, it's less than that. Britain and France by 80 each, China five or six times, I think. But, I, but America has used its veto almost half the time to defend Israel from criticism by the rest of the Council and in 40 cases where it's been the only uh, country actually using the veto. So there are, there's the whole question of the veto which you can change. The institutions of global governance, the Bretton Woods institutions, well the most important issue there is that Europe should um, give up part of its voting weight um, to China and, and Brazil and India and so on um, and ideally that Europe should start to speak with one voice. Well, <laughs> and uh, of course next Tuesday pigs will fly. By, by, by Friday we will have a European Union president and a very, very high representative whom we're not allowed to call foreign minister in this country in case the Daily Mail gets cross. Um, and then it'll all be all right. Um, I think that what we're more likely to see is the development of ad hoc organizations, a bit like the G20, or ad hoc regional organizations. And I don't think that's, that's um, a, a bad thing. There is the more general issue, which is how we accommodate um, the fact that China will once again in this century be the largest economy in the world as it has been for 18 out of the last 20. How do we account, how will we accommodate India, which will have the largest population um, and one of the three or four largest economies in the world by 2040 probably, and a bigger population than China. How do we accommodate Brazil, South Africa and so on? Uh, 
what we know and what um, President Obama is uh, demonstrating in um, Beijing this week is that there isn't a single big global problem that you can face, that you can deal with, unless China and uh, India and others are involved. Can you deal with Iran? Can you deal with North Korea? Can you deal with big economic issues? No, you can't. And what is the Chinese view of that? I mean, because China, you write about China in the book, of course, and you have a, a unique experience of engaging with China, probably more remarkable experience than almost anyone writing on China in the West. And I wonder what you think, in this respect, on the future role of China, the kind of engagement we might expect from China into the future. Because clearly, where China is engaged in some respects, it's on energy, climate change issues now, we see quite significant shifts in the Chinese view, which are important, progressive, and create a basis of optimism about some kind of G2 initiative or agreement on climate change, which might bring other countries in its way. In the area of Africa, which you also write about, there's reason to be reasonably concerned about the consequences of increased Chinese presence in Africa for a whole range of issues which threaten to yeah. regress the governance agenda backwards. I think China gets it in some areas. I think it gets it on the environment increasingly. Um, partly because um, Chinese leaders are able to see for themselves the consequence of environmental de deterioration, the consequences for politics um, as well as for quality of life, um, and the consequences for um, uh, the economy. Um, I'm not sure that China, the Chinese leadership yet understands that if you're a big country, you have a vested interest in regional and global stability. And I don't think that's what Chinese leadership is investing in in Africa. I thought it was astonishing the other day that after that awful massacre in the football stadium in Guinea, um, China um, blithely announced that it was going ahead with a, what was it, seven or eight billion loan to Guinea, which the um, uh, Guinea junta um, paraded as an example that they were um, accepted by the rest of the world. Now, I suspect in China there is a growing debate within the party and the foreign ministry about whether commodity-driven diplomacy is such a good idea. Um, let me give you a very practical example. Sudan. China buys 25% of Sudan's oil and 10% of its own oil comes from Sudan. China, in order to um, uh, firm up this relationship, has um, cozied up to the government in Khartoum, but unfortunately 80% of the oil in Sudan is in the south of the country, and there is a referendum by 2011 on whether the south secedes from the north. And if the South votes to do that, as it's likely to, with 80% of the oil, the one thing which at present seems unlikely is that that will be taken uh, kindly by the government in Khartoum, 
which has all those weapons that it's bought um, from or been given by China. Now, it's in China's interest to have a stable Sudan, not to have a Sudan which is at war once again, particularly at war between the South, which has got the oil it wants, and the North, which has got the guns it's provided. So I, I very much hope that the Chinese will accept that we're not hectoring them when we talk about the importance of good governance in, in uh, countries with large quantities of resources or minerals, of our shared responsibility uh, for stability in a continent like Africa. We've got a very bad record ourselves. You know, who, who invented Mobutu? Um, who began the rape and pillage of the um, Democratic Republic of the Congo, for such it's called? Um, so we can't uh, talk to China about these issues as though we were morally superior. But we can tell them what we think works and what doesn't work. And sweeping aside, for example, the um, treaties on uh, transparency in uh, doing oil and mineral deals, um, resulting in the president of Angola being able to invest even more in the Sao Paulo stock exchange than he was investing already. Not very good politics. <coughs> Let me ask you a final question before I ask the audience to, to engage with you. Really, and this is about the C word, and the C word just doesn't crop up much in your book and, and also in your answers to these questions. And that is, of course, conservatism. Um, you've been a committed conservative throughout your working life. In light of the financial crisis, I wonder, and the necessary rebalancing between states and markets, and the global challenges which we face, which require new forms of intelligent regulation, doesn't the truth of politics, as it were, rebalancing market states, the problem of externalities, the issue of regulation and so on, increasingly lie, doesn't the truth of politics, as it were, increasingly lie towards the left? In other words, or to put the question differently, don't we now live in a political world where the issue is how to balance markets, democracy, social justice, and sustainability? And is this a conservative agenda? I, I wrote a a very good little book in about 1981-82 um, about conservatism, which I um, strongly recommend. <laughs> it's been uh, widely remained within about three months of it being written. Um, but perhaps it wasn't edited very well. Um, I... I um, I said I was a conservative, not a neoliberal, and I have no difficulty at all in believing that um, markets should be regulated, but in ways which don't actually choke off entrepreneurial vim or their ability to create resources. Um, uh, I'm, I suppose, in a long tradition of non-ideological 
pragmatic, um, slightly world-weary, skeptical of smart ideas, um, Tories that runs back. It used to be the fashionable thing to be. I'm very old, you must understand. But I mean, my predecessor, but one as as Chancellor of Oxford University, Harold Macmillan, was an exemplar of this uh, of this approach. Rab Butler. Um, uh, my favourite story about Rab Butler, who was one of my, who was, I suppose, one of my political heroes. Um, a friend of mine, that, who was a young researcher, had gone to see him when he was. Uh, in, it must have been in the early 1960s, late 1950s. I can't remember which of his government posts he held. Um, and he'd, he had a withered arm. He was in the garden and he was trying to cut roses, my friend recalls, with the one arm, in this curious gesture. And my friend said to him, when he was taking his leave, what do you think you've most learned out of politics over the years? And he said, oh, it's easy, he said. It's more important to be generous than efficient. <laughs> Wise words to end on. Well, thank you. I'd like to take some questions now from the audience. Uh, we, we, uh, 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 Chris is with us until 8 o'clock. There's going to be a book signing as well. He needs to leave at 8. So I think we can take just 15, 20 minutes of questions. Um, I think I'll take questions if it's right with you in clusters of five. Yeah. So we'll put some issues on the table and then you can um, respond to them. Uh, it's easier to duck the difficult ones. Yes, it's easy, them. exactly. <laughs> exactly, that's the great advantage of five questions. No one can expect you to remember them all. Yeah, Robert Wade. There's a mic, I should add, coming along. Uh, Robert Wade. Um, what do you think are the chances of war between um, North and South Korea and between Taiwan and the mainland? And if you think, say, within the next 10 years or so, and if you think that the chances of war are low, then what do you see as the trajectory of those conflicts? Do you see any route to a peaceful settlement of either the Korean conflict or the Taiwan-China conflict. Good small questions to start with. Uh, yes, gentlemen, just over there with something. We'll move across the room. Hi, I'm from Hong Kong, and since you have mentioned about the success of Hong Kong in the beginning, I would like to seek your views on when China is increasing its importance in the global economy and also the improving conditions uh, uh, relationship between Taiwan and the mainland. How do you see the, the function of Hong Kong to the mainland in both economic and political? That's easy. That's another easy question. Yes, gentlemen. Uh, Lord Patton, may I ask a question about climate change? My name is Stuart Wheeler. The Times carried a poll recently which showed the public, broadly speaking, was not concerned about it, whereas almost all politicians and the Times itself are concerned about it. But there are three facts which are beyond dispute, I think. Number one, it has been getting colder, not hotter, for the last 13 years. Number two, food production will go up if it gets warmer. And number three, 
deaths from climate will go down if it gets warmer. So are we right, or is anybody right, to be worried? Amal yes. Karaz. Uh, if you were in office, would you make it priority, given the 13% deficit uh, in, the, in the budget that you talked about, would you make it priority to make to the inheritance tax cut for estates over £1 million? And would you, going back to financial regulation and the failures there, would you make the FSA essentially a subdivision of the Bank of England? And finally, do you think the debate in, over Europe, the question of Europe, is basically uh, over in the Conservative Party? You've seen uh, the major governments obviously torn apart by that. Do you think the debate is over? Fourth knockout question. This is the LSE, so we do expect this, but I mean, these are very substantial questions. I'm just looking, we've had all boys so far asking questions, as it were. I, I, I want to ensure that uh, we have a reasonable representation of the audience, which is not all male. Um, anyone else? Yes, at the back. There was a recent survey in UK. Uh, which said that people are tired of hearing the word climate change and uh, they don't believe it exists because they keep hearing about it so often. Uh, do you think there's an essential problem in the kind of communication that is given to the general public about how climate change is affecting them, not in the way that the glaciers are melting, but that you know their uh, food production, their food prices will go up, or, or you know the regular uh, life will be affected? Thank you. I mean, Chris, that is a hell of an agenda. Um, well, I'll be and it's going to be worse, because I can only really give you f five or six minutes, because I would like another round of questions before you go, just to get more issues out. Uh, uh, right. So if you could just be tight. <laughs> well, it, may, it may mean I may not be able to engage in a very long debate with Stuart Wheeler about climate change denial. Um, but let me, let me come to that point, because he... Um, these are intelligent points and they can't just be dismissed. Um, first of all, Robert Wade. Um, it's very difficult to know what is happening in North Korea. I injudiciously, a few years ago, just after I'd been to Pyongyang, described North Korea as being a society in free fall but it's still falling <laughs> and nothing has happened um, except alas that people have got um, even more hard up um, at that time there was a real expectation that sooner or later there would be a German type reunification though I think, I think in South Korea they were slightly alarmed at the likely cost and in China worried about as they still are about migration flows from North Korea into what are already um, rust belt um, provinces of China um, I hope and believe that we can avoid war with North Korea, which is, I think, um, and it's not an original point, a, a bit like one of those difficult teenagers. I mean, they, 
they always make a fuss when you haven't been taking any notice of them for a bit. And in part, they, they make their living out of making a fuss. Um, Taiwan mainland, uh, I don't think there's going to be um, conflict because I think that both parties understand just how far they can stretch the elastic band um, without making it snap. The Taiwanese are terrible teases about sovereignty, but I think they know um, how far China's prepared to let them go. Chinese generals on the mainland make occasionally blood-curdling speeches about um, missiles and unacceptable behavior. But you don't always, in any society, get the smartest geostrategic advice from generals. Uh, I think that um, what is more significant is that half the high-tech um, uh, joint ventures in China are joint ventures between the Taiwanese and the mainland Chinese. I think that what's more important is that there are, what, 400,000 Taiwanese living in the greater Shanghai area. Um, I think the economic links um, have uh, blunted. No, links can't blunt. The economic relationship has blunted um, much of the aggro between the two sides. And I think also that political change in China will ultimately be the only way in which um, the division between Taiwan and the mainland is is ended. So um, I think the likelihood of hot conflict is low um, and that politics and economics are likeliest to um, create change when it comes, when it happens. It's interesting to look at the at the amount of at the number of multinational brands in America and Europe which manufacture in Taiwanese owned factories in China. Um, Hong Kong's relations with the mainland <coughs> the implication of the of the question is that because of um, the possibility of a rapprochement between Taiwan and the mainland and perhaps because of the uh, extraordinary sophisticated development of Shanghai um, Hong Kong and its economic prospects will be affected I don't think so first of all because what's happening in China is sufficiently large and sufficiently extensive um, for it to uh, continue to um, uh, benefit Hong Kong. Secondly, because Hong Kong has something which no other Chinese city has at the moment, uh, which is the rule of law. And it's interesting how many Chinese mainland companies go to Hong Kong to sign contracts because they're then justiciable um, in Hong Kong. Um, uh, so I, th I think Hong Kong still has all the 
merits, all the advantages of being what Sammy Feiner, the great American political scientist at Oxford, described as the only liberal society he could think of that wasn't democratic. In other words, a society which has the rule of law, all the freedoms you'd associate with democracy, except the ability to choose its own government. Um, I think Hong Kong is the, f is the freest, pretty well the freest city in Asia, outside Japan. Um, certainly I, I can think of one or two other cities, I better not get too controversial, <laughs> which are alleg allegedly democratic, which aren't as free as Hong Kong. Um, then there was a question which rather charmingly um, encouraged me to say I disagree with every aspect of conservative policy and will not vote conservative at the next election. I think that was the, um, uh, what was intended in the question about tax cuts, a state duty, the FSA and Europe. Um, I don't think that the most important thing any government has to do is to cut a state duty. I am um, uh, uninformed and agnostic about whether the FSA is better in or outside the Bank of England uh, and I think um, that the Conservative Party should not, if it's elected uh, after the after May the 6th, which is when the election is going to be held, of course. Um, I don't think the Conservative Party should get into a food fight with Europe when it's going to have a big enough problem sorting out the economy at home. And I have uh, even more extensive views on Europe than that. Um, on climate change, um, I think we'd have a different view on the politics of climate change if we were having to find our water in China or increasingly India in those two countries six of the main river bearing uh, water bearing rivers rise in the Tibetan plateau and their water flow is increasingly affected by earlier glacier melt in the uh, high mountains. Um, I think that's going to turn the Tibetan plateau, if we're not careful, into a real uh, security issue in the next few years. Do I, um, uh, am I a denier of climate change? No. I think there is an admirable tradition uh, in this country and elsewhere of um, giving two fingers to experts but it does seem to me that um, the overwhelming um, scientific evidence uh, is uh, points to um, the existence of global warming to the consequences being pretty uh, awful particularly for the poorest countries in the most environmentally challenged parts of the world um, I've just come back from um, uh, Dar es Salaam and Africa and um, 
they're pretty nervous about the consequences of climate change there, which they don't think are going to allow, allow them to produce more food because of the maldistribution of water as well as other resources around the world. But yours is an important uh, voice and we shouldn't simply drown it out by arguing that um, uh, you don't agree with the experts. Next question. Well, we're not, we don't have much time uh, because there has to be time for signing books on our side. So I'm going to ask three snappy questions, starting with you over there, yes. Very snappy, short questions. No, no, down here, please. Down here. Right down here. Hey, there's a... Yeah, yeah exactly. Thank you. Hi, Mr. Patton. Hi. It's really nice seeing you because uh, I'm from Hong Kong, and the last time that I saw you, I was nine years old. And, and, <laughs> and it was particularly nice seeing you then because I was going. <laughs> And uh, I guess my question is about democracy because um, in Hong Kong there is a, there's a lot of movement on democratization. But then I just wonder what is the real use of democracy because I think that you know Hong Kong is a relatively um, weak government because we have a lot of structural constraints with the government. We are only part of the China. We are only part of China now, and we undeniably we are under the China influence. And for example, a lot of um, questions, um, such as uh, the questions of inflation and market uh, fluctuations, isn't under uh, the control of the government. And uh, so I just wonder what. And for example, uh, we have a lot of uh, structural constraints in, uh, in Hong Kong. We, we don't when have about for too many examples. Oh, sorry. Do you I mind mean, just bringing it to a final? No, okay. It's a great question, so, but we just um, need a final. So I wonder what will it. So will it um, uh, make a lot of change if we really do have democracy in Hong Kong? Will it solve all the problems given to all the structural constraints that we are having now? Thank you. Up there. Briefly, may I ask, um, bringing the debate back to Europe, what do you think is the most winnable aspect of David Cameron's policy, the new policy on Europe, especially since a lot of the goals you've outlined are under the shadow of the ECR, ECHR, which has been given more control under Lisbon? Sorry, can you, can you just say the last bit? I didn't hear. Um, which aspect of David Cameron's policy on Europe do you think is the most successful? Um, because, you know, some things that have been outlined have been, have been, have been hotly debated in this in, in tonight are going to be, we have less influence because the courts in Europe have more control after Lisbon, okay. which takes effect of... Thank you. And then I'm afraid there is only time for one more question, and it's to the, the gentleman here. Uh, and then I will ask you just to take a minute, really, okay. to, to quickly address okay. these, and then I need to say something before you all go. Uh, do you think the implementation of Lisbon will actually end up giving the European Union a more coherent voice internationally? And how concerned are you about conservative foreign policy um, marginalizing us, not just with our European partners by leaving the EPP, but actually marginalizing us with Washington too? Because Washington has always seen, uh, uh, or wants to see, a British government, any British government, working at the heart of Europe. And we're seeing the close cooperation, or increasingly closer, working together of Sarkozy and Merkel. And there's a real danger that we're going to be out in the periphery, isn't there? Thank you. Now, we've got about a minute or two minutes for you, Chris. And then before you all go, I obviously want to thank Chris, but I must make one announcement. Okay. Um, democracy in Hong Kong. 
I said earlier that I think Hong Kong is the only society in the world which is liberal but not democratic. Um, should it aspire to democracy? Well, whether it should or not, it does. I mean, as you know, there have been five, six, seven hundred thousand people marching on the streets in favour of democracy, led by my former deputy, the former Chief Secretary, uh, Anson Chan. Um, uh, I think it is curious to allow people to make every economic choice that they want, but not to be able to decide how their children are educated, or how their rubbish is collected, or how housing policy operates in their community. Um, I think uh, uh, the Chinese leadership has been ill-advised to be so nervous about democracy, which I think would be operated, would be a moderating force in Hong Kong rather than the reverse. What I never understood was the argument which some businessmen used to advance, invariably businessmen who had Canadian or Australian or British or American passports in their back pockets, that somehow um, if Hong Kong became more democratic, it would, ha it would have greater difficulty in running a balanced economic policy. Um, I simply don't believe for one moment that's true. Um, though it is perhaps true that a more democratic government would take a beady look at um, policies on the property sector uh, in Hong Kong, which might not be hugely popular with all the businessmen who oppose democracy. Um, secondly, uh, Europe. Um, I don't think that Lisbon is going to produce more Brussels control over the UK. Indeed, it should lead to our national parliament, to Westminster, having a bigger role in the legislative process in, in Europe. Um, British attitudes to Europe um, do need a, to some extent, psychoanalyst rather than uh, a <laughs> politician um, and uh, David Cameron has to manage that process within the Conservative Party I thought you were going to say David Cameron needs to see a psychoanalyst <laughs> <laughs> uh, Historically oppositions in this country have drifted into anti-European positions and governments have been more sensible I certainly agree with you that um, the last thing the United States would wish to see is um, uh, the United Kingdom locked in a furious fight with Europe rather than working with our European colleagues in order to shape slightly more credible European positions around the world. Um, I'm always interested when people talk about sovereignty uh, and uh, relate our position to the United States as opposed to Europe. Uh, I recall Douglas Hurd saying on one occasion that here we are, we've been in the European Union for all these years, the Queen is still on the throne, uh, her head is still on our banknotes, and we still go to war at the behest of an American president. <laughs> Thank you very much. One announcement.
um, this excellent book is available on sale outside, just up there, outside the lecture theatre. I would ask you all to remain seated whilst Chris Patton leaves so that he can get up there and he will be ready to sign copies of the book if you, if you wish. I think um, the, the book is, I mean, I was really very pleased to read it. It's terribly readable and an extremely substantial statement on many of the core challenges of our time. And the audience has already warmly thanked you, but I think we should warmly thank you again for a very wide-ranging survey of contemporary global challenges.